Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Long before serial killers and mass murders had become a normal part of life, two adults and six children were found brutally murdered in their beds in a small Midwestern town. The bloody Villisca Axe murders have stumped authorities for over a century, despite numerous suspects, two trials, and a confession. To this day, ghosts are still reaching out to try and shed light on the truth. It all started on June 9, 1912, in Villisca, Iowa, a Midwestern town of around 2,500 people. Villisca was a flourishing community where businesses lined the streets and several dozen trains pulled into the depot on a daily basis. According to the Dictionary of Iowa Place Names, Villisca got its name from the Sac and Fox Native American word Willisca, meaning evil spirit. White settlers of the region mistook the name for meaning pretty place and liked that it described their newly settled town so well. 43-year-old Josiah Moore was one of Villisca's most prominent businessmen. After he amassed reasonable wealth during his 30s, he went on to marry Sarah Montgomery, another prominent member of the tight-knit community. Josiah and Sarah Moore had four children, Herman, who was 11, Mary, who was 10, Arthur, who was 7, and Paul, who was five years old. Josiah had been a resident of Villisca for 13 years and was the owner and operator of a farm supply store right there in town. Sarah was 39 years old and an active member of the Presbyterian Church and led the Children's Day program on June 9, 1912. The Children's Day program was an annual end-of-the-school-year event and began at approximately 8 p.m. on Sunday evening, June 9th. Sarah Moore coordinated the event and took care to make sure it ran smoothly. All of the Moore children participated, and so did a couple of Mary's friends named Lena and Ina Stillinger. Twelve-year-old Lena and eight-year-old Ina were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger and were two of nine children in that family. After church that morning, the girls had visited their grandmother for the afternoon and were planning to return and spend the night with her after the church program. However, when their best friend Mary invited them to stay the night at her house instead, all three girls begged Josiah and Sarah to call Lena and Ina's parents for permission. Gotta love a fun girl sleepover. Plus, being in the early 1900s, that's probably the most exciting thing ever. (laughs) I remember those days. Well, sleepovers, not the 1900s. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Were the girls able to go, though? So Josiah placed the call to the Stillinger home to ask permission for the girls to stay overnight. Blanche, Lena and Ina's older sister, told Josiah that her parents were both outside, but she would pass the message along to them. The program ended at 9.30 p.m., and the Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked the three blocks home from the church. They entered their home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. that night. They shared some milk and cookies to end the festive evening, then all went to bed. Like most people in such a small community where everyone knows everyone else, they almost never locked their doors, and this night was no different. Crime was not the sort of thing people worried about back then, especially in a small, friendly town. Monday morning, next-door neighbor Mary Peckham started hanging her laundry on the line around 5 a.m. By 7 a.m., she realized that not only had the Moors not been outside to start their chores yet, The house itself seemed unusually still. She approached the house and knocked on the door, 
When she received no response, she attempted to open the door only to find it locked. Her neighbors never locked their door, and she just knew something was terribly wrong for the usually bustling household to be so devoid of activity at this hour. After letting the Morris chickens out and checking on their other livestock, she grew even more concerned as none of the animals had been cared for yet that morning. She called Josiah's brother Ross and asked him to take a look around. Love a good neighbor who knows your daily routine, and I can't blame her for being concerned, especially if she's so close with them. Yeah, I mean, I hope someone would notice if something wasn't right at my house. Oh, same. What happened, though, when Josiah's brother came? So Ross Moore arrived at the house around 8 a.m. and used his spare key to let himself in through the front door. As he made his way through the house, he glanced into the downstairs guest bedroom and, to his horror, found two blood-soaked sheets covering what could only be two small corpses on the bed. He came rushing out of the house, calling for Velisca Sheriff Hank Horton. Hank brought along Dr. Clark Cooper, Dr. Lindquist, the county coroner, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams. They also brought Edgar Hugh and Wesley Ewing, the ministers of the Moore's Presbyterian congregation. All six family members, as well as the two young house guests, had been brutally murdered during the night their skulls crushed while they slept. Once the murders were discovered, the news traveled quickly through the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. As many as a hundred curious neighbors and townspeople roamed as they pleased to the house, gawking at the bodies. One person even removed fragments of Josiah's skull as a macabre keepsake. The Velisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and secure the home. By then, so much evidence had been lost and hundreds of fingerprints littered the crime scene. It's important, however, that we also realize that even if the crime scene had been secure, the evidence would probably not have provided any real clues. In 1912, fingerprinting was a fairly new venture, and DNA testing was unimaginable. There was no central database, and fingerprinting techniques were still pretty inaccurate. Oh my gosh, this is a crime scene nightmare. They might as well not investigate the case at all. So much damage has already been done. It's insane. This would never happen today. That's crazy to think that so many people thought it was okay to even go check out the crime scene, but it's probably the most exciting thing happening back then. Right? With the evidence they did have, they were able to piece together a really bizarre series of events from the night of the murder. Two cigarettes were found in the attic, suggesting that the killer or killers waited in the attic for the family to come home and go to sleep before making their move. That theory also explains why the killer started upstairs in Josiah and Sarah's room rather than the guest room down by the front door. Shortly after midnight, someone crept down from the attic carrying an axe stolen earlier from the family's shed out back. They very quietly took the oil lamp from the parents' dresser, removed the chimney, bent the wick to minimize the flame, and lit the lamp on low so it only cast the faintest glow. Raising the axe high above their head, the killer brought the blade down hard on Josiah's skull, most likely killing him instantly. They then struck Sarah a blow to the head immediately after, before she had time to wake up or register what was happening. The killer then went next door to the kids' room, where all four more children were still fast asleep. Each was bludgeoned once in the head with the flat end of the axe. 
Investigators found no evidence that any of the children upstairs woke up before being murdered. The killer then descended the stairs and took the axe to the Stillinger sisters just as they had to the others. The older sister, Lena, must have woken up during the attack and tried to fight back. She was found with a defensive wound on her arm and had one leg out of bed as if trying to get away. Her nightgown was pushed up to her waist and her underwear had been removed, leading investigators to believe the killer had at least attempted to sexually molest her. The coroners found no evidence of sexual assault, but she was the only victim left in an altered state like that. I think she was likely sexually assaulted with or without the evidence because it makes no sense to leave her like that. I agree. I don't know how accurate their observations for that were back then. It would be really odd for a predator to get her in that state and then not go through with it. Yeah, definitely. So they figured out how everyone died. Did the killer just leave after the job was done? What the killer or killers did next took this from a horrific act of violence to a bizarre and chilling massacre. Now that everyone in the house was dead, they went back upstairs and systematically reduced the heads of all six more family members to a bloody pulp. Josiah received the worst of it, with an estimated 30 blows to the face and head with the blade of the axe. Each of the other family members received around 20 blows, but with the blunt side of the axe, leaving slightly less damage, but still leaving everyone completely unrecognizable. The killer had used such force that the ceiling in each room had gouges out of it from the force of the upswing. It also suggested the killer was rather tall, confirming for investigators that only a man could have done this. Next, the killer went around to each and every victim and covered their bodies and mutilated heads with bedsheets, coats, and clothing found in drawers there in the house. He then went back downstairs and administered the same brutal post-mortem mutilation to the Stillinger girls and covered them with bedsheets and coats. The killer spent hours in the house after the murder. He closed the curtains on every window. On those that didn't have curtains, he hung up clothes until it was completely covered. He covered every mirror and piece of glass in the house by hanging clothes or other cloth items found around the house. On the kitchen table, police found a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water, which the killer likely used to clean the blood off their face and hands. At the foot of each bed, investigators found oil lamps placed perfectly centered, each with the chimney removed and the wick bent in two. Another oil lamp, this one with blood smeared on it, was left burning at the top of the stairs. At some point, the killer took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom, close to a short piece of keychain that did not belong to the family. The axe was also found in that room, which had been occupied by the Cylinder girls. The axe was bloody, but an attempt had clearly been made to wipe it off. Sometime before 5 a.m., the killer took the family's house keys, locked every door, and left. That's so eerie and extra. Almost like he was trying to send a message to someone. It was either done as a message after the murders were discovered, or it was some kind of weird ritualistic set of actions the killer felt compelled to do while murdering people. Well, with all that information left at the crime scene by hopefully the killer and not the people that went in and tampered with the evidence, they had to have a few suspects in mind, right? The local police actually had very few leads. They searched Villisca and the surrounding areas and interviewed some townsfolk, 
but the killer had at least a three-hour head start on them, and police believed that he would have already left town for sure. Bloodhounds were tried without success, but with so many trains in and out of the town on a daily basis, it was likely the killer or killers were long gone. After that, there was little for the townspeople to do but gossip, swap theories, and strengthen the security of their homes. By sundown, every door in Velisca was locked and there was not a dog left available to buy. Back then, as we previously talked about in Season 1, Episode 19, Black Widow Debutante, murder investigations began with a coroner's inquest. Basically, prominent men from the community got together to hear the evidence and discuss what they think might have happened. I mean, what other way is there to solve a murder? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I love how they were always just like, okay, let's get all the random men together and think about it. (laughs) I mean, what better way to solve a murder than a bunch of non-professionals? Of course. On June 11th, the coroner's jury convened for the inquest. Fourteen witnesses were called to testify, the first being Mary Peckham, the neighbor who first noticed something was off. She testified that she had seen the family before they left for church on Sunday night, but she was in bed by 8 p.m., so didn't see them return. According to her testimony, Mary heard absolutely no noises from the house during the night. According to Mary, she stayed on the porch while Ross looked in the kitchen and then opened the door to the downstairs bedroom. After seeing two bodies and bloodstained sheets, Ross immediately returned to the porch where Mary was waiting to inform her that something awful had happened and instructed her to call the sheriff. The second witness to be called was Ed Seeley, an employee of Josiah's. Ed testified that on Monday morning, June 10th, he opened the store and received a telephone call from Ross, Josiah's brother. Ross asked him if he knew where Josiah was, and Ed called Josiah's elderly parents to see if he had gone to visit his father. Josiah's mother told him that he had not been there. Ed then received a call from Mary, who asked him if Josiah was at the store and told him that the livestock needed tending. Ed left the store and went to the Moore home where he fed the horses. After returning to the store, he received another call telling him to bring the sheriff to the house quickly. When questioned at the inquest about possible enemies of Josiah, Ed admitted that Josiah had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. He had told him that he had a brother-in-law that didn't like him and had threatened to get even. Ed denied having any other information and was excused. The next two witnesses were the doctors that were called to the scene and had examined the bodies. They reiterated the evidence we discussed earlier, adding that the killer was likely left-handed and were also dismissed. The inquest called each of Josiah's brothers, but none of them could provide any insight into enemies Josiah might have had. He had been well-liked in the community, and they couldn't imagine who might want him dead. The coroner then called Blanche to the stand. Blanche was the eldest of the Sillinger children and sister to victims Ina and Lena. According to Blanche, Josiah had called the house at around 6 p.m. on Sunday night and asked to speak with her mother. When she told him that her mother was outside, he went on to tell her that the girls were going to church with his family and didn't want to walk back to their grandmothers in the dark. He then asked if she thought it would be okay if they stayed with the Moors overnight. Blanche testified that she told him she thought it would be okay. After questioning Lena and Ina's father, Joe, about his hired help and whether or not he knew of anyone who could have committed this crime, the coroner asked if he had called the Moore house on Monday morning. 
He responded that his wife had called three times because they were expecting the girls home before school and were concerned that they would be late. I'm not seeing anything off here. I mean, I guess they could have walked over after the third unanswered call, but I don't necessarily fault them for that. Of course not. None of these people they interviewed had any valuable information. So what now? Well, like I said, the inquest didn't lead to any reasonable suspects and in the end didn't really help the investigation at all. Sharon will tell us about the suspects the police did manage to find after this short break. Among the suspects immediately after the murders was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder. The ex-husband of Sarah's sister, Mary, Lee had a few previous brushes with law enforcement and was known to be prone to violence. Although he and his wife had divorced, there was apparently enough bad blood between the two for him to be a suspect. However, he was later cleared. The most obvious suspect in the eyes of many in the town was Frank Jones, a tough local businessman and state senator, who was also a prominent member in Villisca's Methodist Church. The town quickly split along religious lines, the Methodists insisting on Jones' innocence and the Presbyterian congregation convinced of his guilt. Though never formally charged with any involvement in the murders, Frank became the subject of the grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which destroyed his political career. There were compelling reasons to believe that Frank had hated Josiah. Josiah had worked for Frank for seven years, becoming the star salesman of Jones Farm Equipment Business. Frank insisted Josiah worked 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week, so in 1907, Josiah left and started his own head-to-head rival company, taking the valuable John Deere account with him. By 1912, relations between Frank and Josiah had grown so cold that they would even cross the street rather than walk near each other. Few people believed that Frank would have swung the axe himself, but in some minds, he was certainly capable of paying someone else to wipe out the Moore family. That led to the theory that Frank had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder the man who had humiliated him. People really got on board with this theory when only a couple years later in 1914, William was the chief suspect in the axe murders of his wife, her parents, and his only child in Blue Island, Illinois. In 1916, he was even arrested for the crime. William, though, turned out to have a solid alibi for the Moore killings. Payroll records showed that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders, and he was released for lack of evidence. Frank and Josiah are petty as hell, but that doesn't necessarily mean Frank had him and his family killed. This William guy looked promising, given what he did to his own family, until you mentioned the rock-solid alibi. Yeah, I mean, if you kill your own family with an axe once, why wouldn't you kill another family? Who else have we got? For others, there is a far more likely and stranger candidate for the axe murderer. His name was Reverend George Kelly, and he was an English immigrant, a preacher, and a known sexual deviant with a well-recorded history of mental problems. He had been in town on the night of the murders and freely admitted that he and his wife had left out on an early morning train just before the bodies were discovered. There was some evidence against him, like he was left-handed, and he had been caught peering into the windows in Villisca just two days before the murders. However, he was only five foot two and weighed 119 pounds, making it hard to believe that he would have swung that axe with the strength required to do the damage that had been done. He also wasn't tall enough to have made the gouges in the ceiling while swinging the axe. It took time for the case against Reverend Kelly to get anywhere. 
But in 1917, a grand jury finally assembled to hear the evidence linking him to the murders. At first glance, the case against him seemed compelling. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia when he got off the train. And an elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher when he got off the train at 5.19 a.m. from Velisca on June 10th. They stated that he told them that a gruesome murder had been committed in Velisca, which was a hugely incriminating statement since the preacher had left Velisca three hours before the killings were discovered. It also came out that he had returned to Velisca a week later and had shown great interest in the murders. He was arrested in 1917 and repeatedly interrogated. Eventually, he signed a confession in which he stated, and I quote, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. End quote. He later recanted this confession, and the couple who claimed to have spoken with him the morning after the murders changed their story as well. With little left to tie him firmly to the killings, the jury of the trial acquitted him and he was freed. He's a confusing one. I honestly don't know if he looks guilty or if he's just a weirdo. The confession definitely sounded forced to me. I'm not convinced about either of these suspects. Perhaps the strongest evidence that both Frank and Reverend Kelly were most likely innocent came not from Velisca itself, but from several other communities in the Midwest. In 1911 and 1912, a bizarre chain of axe murders seemed to suggest that the transient killer was still at work. It suggested that as many as 10 incidents occurred close to railway tracks during that time, but in locations spanning as far as Rainier, Washington, and Mammoth, Illinois. These other cases held striking similarities to the Velisca case. The pattern was first pointed out in 1913 by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation. It began with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in 1911 and continued with two more incidents in Mammoth, Illinois and Ellsworth, Kansas. As far as Special Agent Matthew was concerned, the slaughter spree ended in December of 1912 with the brutal murders of Georgia Moore and her parents in Columbia, Missouri. His theory was that Henry Lee Moore, Georgia's son, and a convict with a history of violence was responsible for the whole series. Henry worked for the railroad from 1911 to 1912, leading credibility to this theory. Many don't believe Henry was responsible for any of the other murders during that time, though, because it's rare for a wandering serial killer to return home and kill his own family. It's not necessary to believe that Henry was the serial killer to consider that the string of Midwest Axe murders have intriguing similarities to the Velisca massacre. Not only were all 10 committed with an axe while the family were sleeping, but in 8 of the 10 cases, the murder weapon was found abandoned at the scene of the crime. In as many as 7, there was a railway line nearby. In 3, including Velisca, the murders took place on a Sunday night. And in at least four of the cases, the killers covered their victims' faces, washed at the scene, and lingered in the house after the murders. Most interesting of all was that these other homes had lamps left at the foot of the bed, on which the chimney had been laid aside and the wick bent down, and all the mirrors in the home had been covered, just as it had been at the Moore house. Okay, that's pretty convincing. Ten similar murders happening in a two-year period definitely sounds like a serial killer. And the coverings of all the mirrors is such a unique signature, it just feels like it can't be a coincidence. That, or it could have easily been a copycat murderer. 
1912, the idea of a serial killer wasn't widely accepted. The term serial killer didn't even come around until the 70s. A copycat is pretty unlikely, since newspapers really only reported local stories back then. Most people wouldn't have known the details of what was going on in other towns. Did anyone else ever come forward? Over the years, jailhouse confessions and deathbed confessions have continued to pour in, but they were all discredited. More than 100 years later, it's unlikely we'll ever find out who committed that crime. The Velisca murder of the Moore family and their guests will remain a mystery, never to be solved. Whether it was one of these men or an unknown serial killer, we will simply never know. Okay, so after 100 years, what happened to the house? Over the next 100 years, the Velisca Axe murder house would change hands several times. In 1993, the local museum owner was approached and asked if they were interested in buying the property because it was in danger of being demolished. Duran Lynn decided to lowball an offer on the property. He told the agent that it would expire at midnight on the first of the year and promptly forgot about it. Needless to say, he was a little surprised when the call came in just before the deadline and he was suddenly the proud owner of the notorious crime scene. Sometime between 1936 and 1993, the house underwent quite a transformation when the front and back porches were closed in, plumbing and electricity were added, and the outbuildings were removed or replaced. Using old photographs, they began renovating the house back to its former glory in late 1994. Work on the home included the removal of vinyl siding and the restoration and repainting of the original wood on the outside, the removal of the front and back enclosures, and the addition of an outhouse and chicken coop in the backyard, and the removal of all electrical and plumbing fixtures. The pantry in the original house had been converted into a bathroom and was also restored to its original condition. Using testimonies given during the coroner's inquest and grand jury testimonies, they have placed furniture in approximately the same places it would have been at the time of the murders. That's so much work to restore it back to its authentic 1912 condition. Placing the furniture exactly as it was during the murder is a little creepy, but that's probably what they were going for. It's completely different than our last case where they wanted that house out of their community. (laughs) Right? On this one, they totally leaned into it. If they did a good job, I bet it would have become a big attraction. The Moore home was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1998 and also received the Preservation at Best Award in 1997. Tours of the home include a very colorful narrative of the time period of the house, the axe murders, and the subsequent controversy the town found itself in regarding rumored suspects. For history buffs, the faint of heart, and schools, the Velisca Axe Murder House is open for daytime tours. Since opening the house to the public, it has been host to school groups from across the Midwest, as well as individuals who just aren't ready to tackle the house after dark. Overnight tours are by reservation only, and it's suggested that you limit your group to 10 or less. Any more than that, the small house gets even smaller. Naturally, with such a dark past, it attracts paranormal investigators, and they say it's incredibly active. There is not a ghostly phenomenon that hasn't been reported there. Things moving, voices, apparitions, shadows, bad vibes, you name it. The Velisca Axe Murder House has had it. One man during a solo overnight stay in 2014 even claimed a dark spirit stabbed him in the shoulder with a knife. He was life-flighted to the hospital where he actually coded from blood loss and had been revived. Police ruled he stabbed himself for attention, but to this day he insists he didn't do it. It's said this house has a mystique all of its own and will rival any other allegedly hunted location. 
An overnight visit to this house will make most skeptics believers come sunrise the next morning. I would love to investigate this house. I heard about the guy who stabbed himself or whatever, and he fully admitted to being rude and trying to piss off the ghosts. I think that's such a bad idea in any ghost hunting situation. Well, that's believable. Don't go playing with spirits thinking it's all fun and games. Exactly. This case is interesting because it's both infamous and a lot of people have never heard of it. The murder spawned nearly 10 years of official investigations, repeated grand jury hearings, a slander lawsuit, and a failed murder trial. The horrific crime made and broke political careers. Legislation was written in response to the murders, including the establishment of the FBI as we know it today. The Velisca Axe Murder House has been featured on many popular ghost hunting shows and podcasts. A few documentaries have even been made about it and some more fictionalized films based on the story too. Johnny Hauser, a paranormal investigator, tour guide, and caretaker of the Velisca Axe Murder House, lives next door and experiences odd activity even over there. He claims the kids come by to visit and play, but he doesn't mind. He's happy people have the opportunity to investigate the property, but insists that everyone who comes to see the house must be respectful to the spirits living there. Based on all the experiences and paranormal evidence caught there by so many different ghost hunters, it's believed that the spirits of all eight victims still dwell within the house. The burning question is why? Is it due to the fear and trauma? Is it because the house is the last place they knew, all the above, or none of the above? While many have tried to solve the case, the Velisca massacre remains a mystery and most likely will forever. Only the ghosts of the past know what happened that night, and so far they haven't shared their secrets. Was the killer a feuding business rival, a local crazy man, or one of America's first serial killers? Either way, a heartless monster got away with murder and eight innocent people were taken far too soon. The Cold Case Foundation is dedicated to stopping the deadly compounding effect of cold cases and providing hope and resources to family affected by violent crime. The Cold Case Foundation is devoted to raising public awareness and creating partnerships to assist and provide law enforcement with whatever resources are needed to bring about closure. To learn more, visit www.coldcasefoundation.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what is our conjure tip of the week? Today I want to teach you how to shield yourself. So if you go ghost hunting, nothing will be able to attach itself to you or manipulate your energy. Shielding is an easy, fast, and effective way to protect yourself if in an area where negative energy might be. Start by visualizing a bubble of light surrounding you. Focus on building this barrier around you in your mind for a few minutes until you feel like it's secure. You'll need to reshield yourself periodically, especially in negative environments. Once you're done, you can visualize the shield and any negative energy attached to it being absorbed into the ground. I love this, and I see it used by many paranormal investigators or taught to people who evil spirits are drawn to. It helps protect them from the harm of the unknown and what they might cause. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.